Welcome, all my friends, my brothers, and my sisters, and everyone interested in this ancient book called the Bible, written hundreds, thousands of years ago, and yet is supposed to mean something to us today. And as we explore this book, we might get a little excited, a little colorful. So buckle up and welcome to the Dumb Christian Podcast. Every once in a while, we're going to read the Bible, and we might come across these stories that seem to come out of nowhere, and we're left asking the question, what does this have to do with the story I'm reading or the rest of the overarching uh, theme of the Bible? And today's story is just one of those type of passages. It's found in Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 35. It's just a few verses, and it's It seems a little obscure, but I recommend, as always, go read it for yourself, Numbers 15, 32 through 35, because God wrote it, God said it the way that he wanted to say it, and he'll always say it better than I can say it. Here at Dumb Christian, we're just going to try and wrap our heads around what's going on in this passage. And we'll need to wrestle with it, because basically, it's a story about a guy that God decides needs to be put to death because he was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Yeah, the Bible is about to get real. So, let's go. It has been 400 years since the Israelites have seen or heard from the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Jacob, Israel. And they've spent 400 years in slavery to the Egyptians, oppressed by the Egyptians, forced to learn and are indoctrinated into Egyptian culture, Egyptian heritage, Egyptian politics, Egyptian religion, and they are learning how to walk like an Egyptian. And the God of Israel is shared and passed down through these oral traditions where they're telling the stories of the creation. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And the Egyptian realities, the Egyptian religions, the Egyptian gods, the Egyptian practices are very, very present, very prominent. And they have a real place in the lives of these Israelite slaves. And the God of Abraham fades into myth. They were promised that God would save them. God would deliver them out of Egypt. But when is it going to happen? Is God really the God that we are told about from who was friends with Abraham and made this promise to bring us into a land of milk and honey? Is this really the God that we believe in? Where is he? If he really was all powerful and all good, like you say he is, why is he letting bad things happen in the world? Hmm, If God is good, why does he allow all this chaos and all this evil Does that sound familiar? Like a question that maybe we've asked sometimes? And so they're waiting and uh, they're wondering, is this God real? Is he even real? And if he is, maybe he's just not as powerful as the Egyptian gods. 
Maybe he just can't stand up against the Egyptian gods. And finally, God raises up a man named Moshe. We might know him as Moses. Uh, Everyone say, Moshe, Moshe. Yes, yes, Moshe. So God raises up Moshe, Moses, and he says, I'm going to use you to deliver the people out of the land of Egypt. So Moses comes in and delivers the report to the elders and the people, and they begin to get excited. Oh, finally, he's going to do what he promised he would do. And they start to get this bit of hope stirring in them, and they spread the word, God's going to deliver us, God's going to save us. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, set my people free. And Pharaoh says, you guys are just lazy if you have time to go worship your God. And so he increases the workload in an instant. The Israelites go from elation to bitching and moaning. Oh, what do you, you come here to get get our hopes up just to dash them to pieces? Now we're not only stuck here as slaves, but our job is worse than it was before. And then what ensues after that is kind of this tug of war back and forth between Moses and Aaron, who represent God, and Pharaoh and his and the priests of the Egyptian gods going back and forth trying to prove who's more powerful. So Moses and Aaron do miracles like turning their staff into a snake, but then the Egyptian priests are able to do the same thing. Then they turn then Moses and Aaron turn the water to blood, but then the Egyptian priests can do that as well. And so there's this back and forth kind of arm wrestling match who's the more powerful God. And the Israelites are watching this happen. They get little glimmers of hope like, oh, look, God is showing up in powerful ways to free us, to save us. Oh, wait, the Egyptian gods can do that too. Maybe he's not as rad as we thought he was. But then the the dynamic shifts a little bit and God begins to do signs and wonders in the land of Egypt that the Egyptian priests can't replicate. Um, the destroying, uh, I think the first one's flies or something, and, and the the priests can't replicate bringing flies. And then the livestock die, and then there's night, and then there's supernatural death. And the God of Abraham, who, who Moses reveals his name is Yahweh, or I am that I am, this God is unlike the Egyptian gods. They can't stand up to him. And yet Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge that Yahweh is the one true God and to release the Israelites into his care. They go back and forth and the Israelites are observing, watching, and learning about this God Yahweh that they've only heard stories about. Now they're experiencing him for the first time. And what they're doing is they're trying to understand this God Yahweh through the lens of what they've learned about deities spending 400 years in Egypt. They understand God's to work in a certain way. And they're trying to understand Yahweh through that lens. And when he finally does bring about their redemption, their release from captivity and their salvation, they have the option to go or stay. 
There isn't actually anything that says they're required to stay. The, although the Egyptians were eager to get the Israelites out because of all the devastation that they've experienced because of their God, there's nothing explicitly that says they had to leave. I suppose it's theoretically possible that if they were in the position where they were given the option, you can be free or you can continue to be an oppressed slave, um, the option, I mean, like if you're faced with the option of exploring something unprecedented, brand new, you've got no safety net, you just, okay, I have this new journey right in front of me and it looks good. It's everything I've ever wanted, except I don't know how it's going to pan out. I don't know where I'm going to get my food. I don't know where I'm going to get my water. I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know how I'm going to make a living. And all of these things begin to, and, and, and quickly we'll see that they wish they would have stayed in Egypt because at least it was familiar. They knew what to expect if they stayed in Egypt. But God's salvation finally arrives and they can leave. The Egyptians send them off. I think even some Egyptians join them because they're like, wow, this God is the God. And we, we want to be a part of that community. So they leave Egypt and very quickly, I think within days, they just start griping because they, they find themselves trapped between a, a, a sea and a hard place. The Red Sea, they come up to the Red Sea and Pharaoh changes his mind and he comes to wipe them out and he's going to kill them all. And they're like, oh, I wish we would have stayed in Egypt instead of experiencing this freedom and salvation that God has offered us, because this is just terrible. I'd rather be a slave in Egypt than be killed by the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And I can't, it's difficult for me to imagine God thinking or he just rolls his eyes right like come on really you think i'm not going to take it you think i did all of that did all the signs and wonders and worked the plagues just to bring you out here so pharaoh could kill you by the red sea like come on buddy for real and he says just shut up and let me do what I'm going to do. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to take care of you. And he saves them. He he op- he parts the Red Sea. They cross. The Egyptian army gets swallowed up by the sea. Oh, and then they celebrate. Oh, wow. God, thank you. That was pretty incredible. But then immediately they start, they go back to their bitching and moaning. We don't have water. And then God gives them water. And they then immediately... They're bitching and moaning. We don't have anything to eat. I'm hungry. And so he gives them manna for 40 years, but that's not enough. So then they go bitching and moaning again. We don't have meat. I want meat. And he gets them quail. But they're always finding something to complain about to this God who is bending over backwards to take care of their needs and who demonstrated he's not to be trifled with. But for some reason, they keep going back and forth trying to decide who is this God Yahweh? What's he really like? Is he like the gods of Egypt or is there something very unique and different about him? And they just continue to walk down this path where they go back and forth with what they really believe about this God. They finally come up to Mount Sinai where he gives the 
he, he gives the Ten Commandments and he says, all right, people, if you do whatever I say to do, I will bless you and I will take care of you forever. And their response is, yes, God, we will do whatever you say. We will be 100% obedient. This is the unanimous agreement among the Israelites as they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses goes up to talk to God. And God says, okay, they said they'll do whatever I say. So let's start with just a few basic ground rules. This is where we get the Ten Commandments. And we're not going to go through those. We will go through them more in detail, along with all the plagues and everything going on in Egypt as we get into the book of Exodus much later. But there's one law in particular that stands out. It is the, I think it's the fourth law. Keep the Sabbath day holy and don't do any work on the Sabbath day. This is a unique law because it says, if you don't do this, you'll die. If you don't rest, you will be put to death. Okay. Now there's a couple of things going on here uh, with this commandment. First, God is saying, you need to take this very seriously. This law, rest. Do not work on the Sabbath day or you will be put to death. You need to take this very seriously. Now, when we think of rest, we think of, okay, it's the weekend and I can finally surround myself with all the cushions on the couch, binge watch the office and finish that bag of Cheez-Its I've been working on all week. And on some level, yes, this is rest, but Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that what God was trying to do with the Israelites was bring them into his rest. God's rest is very, very different from our rest. When we look at the Genesis creation account, the way God rested was to look at all the work he had done and take the time to appreciate and understand the value of the work he had done. So on some level, we might try and tap into this and experience it on our own. Maybe we look back at a painting we did or a drawing or a piece of music that we created. Maybe you look back at that data spreadsheet you filled in for your boss and just think, wow, look at that. That is, that's good work right there. And that's kind of God's rest, but To really step into God's rest is to be able to stop working and take a minute to step back and look at everything God has been doing, all the work God has been accomplishing in your life, in the lives of your friends and your family, in your community, in the world, taking the time to look for the ways God is working and to appreciate and understand the value of that work even in your own life. And the reason why this is so important for the Israelites to practice is because right off the bat, God is giving them freedom from slavery. He's providing them with food and water, even meat. He's leading them through the desert, avoiding armies, even giving them victory when they are attacked by armies. And he's saying... Look, you don't have to do anything. Just 
follow me and I'll take care of the rest. I'll lead you. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. I'll prepare you for those things that are coming down the road. And all you have to do is follow me into this. But what you need to do is for one day every week, just stop your work, stop what you're doing, and just take time to recognize and appreciate the value of everything that I've been doing for you. In the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the war, in the middle of the desert, stop and take time to recognize what God is doing. Not because I've coerced him into it or I've earned his favor, but just because he's good and generous with his goodness. There is an attitude that begins to um, permeate the entire nation of Israel. And it's an attitude that says, uh, we expect, we are entitled to God's blessings, to this salvation. We're entitled to food and water and meat and protection. We're entitled to this, but we don't have to do anything as a response to it. We just get it for free. We don't have to honor God. We don't have to acknowledge him with our lives or our words. He just better take care of us and then we'll do whatever we want to do. And he's saying, look, you could have stayed in Egypt. You could have gone back to Egypt. But if you want to be a part of what I'm doing here, I'm creating something new, something unlike anything else in the world. I am protecting, providing. I am your God who walks with you. I'm not just this idol, this statue. I am present with you. And if you want to be a part of this nation, you need to acknowledge and recognize who is in charge. You don't just get to play this game where you get all the benefits, but you don't have to acknowledge the gift giver. That's why Sabbath is so important. To take the time and acknowledge, look for, and recognize God's good work and the value of it in your life, in the lives of those around you. But then there, in addition to this law, in uh, Numbers chapter 35, he's revisiting how important it is. Don't work on the Sabbath, otherwise you'll die. And then in chapter 35, verse 3, it says, don't build fire on the Sabbath. Now, I I had to do a little bit of research um, into some Jewish explanations and some Jewish tradition. And there's a lot of layers about what fire represents and what goes into it. Um, which we'll get into when we study through Leviticus, and that's not for a good while. But basically, excuse me, the the idea behind building a fire is that it's laborious. You break a sweat collecting the logs, um, stacking them. You got to get the the kindling to get the fire going, and it's a process, right? They, some people might have flint stones and um, uh, maybe some easier ways to start the fire, but you're a Boy Scout, you know, you got to rub those sticks together. It's work. It's hard work to start a fire, and fire also represents work. 
if you're melting down metals or you're using it to cook, all of these things are prohibited on the Sabbath as well. Now, you might ask, what about light and warmth? Um, Some Jewish scholars do acknowledge that you could build a fire on Friday before the sunset, and then you could feed the fire and keep it going. You just couldn't build the fire and start a fire during the Sabbath, which starts at sunset Friday night and goes until sunset Saturday night. And you can't build a fire. Just don't do it. Now, we finally get to Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 35. It says they found a man picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Now, he's working. He's picking up sticks in the same manner that you would collect sticks to build a fire. And they're like, oh. Uh, we don't know what to do with this because we've never, we didn't think anyone would actually do this. Of course, we're not going to work on the Sabbath. So they arrest this guy and they bring him before Moses and they say, what do we do with this guy? And he says, yeah, he needs to be stoned to death. Like, Pete, like put him in the middle of a circle and everyone throws big rocks at him until he dies. What? Are you, are you for real? Like, they they know the law says he's supposed to die, but they don't want to kill him. So they collect him and make sure. They're like, uh, Moses, do we seriously need to kill this guy? Okay, so what in the world is happening here? Let's break this down a little bit. If we go into that passage and, and kind of unpack what's happening. Because sure, we would think, surely this guy is gets put to death for collecting sticks? Come on. But what happens? They It says they found him. So he was hiding. Okay, which we'll get to in a second. But he's working. He's bending. He's reaching down, collecting, picking up, carrying, transporting goods. Um, this is prohibited. You're working. You can't do it. Not only is he working, but he's collecting sticks for the purpose of making a fire. And in the context we read into that, that that's what he's doing. Many Jew- Jewish scholars will acknowledge and recognize that's what he's doing. He's collecting, he's working, which is forbidden, for the purpose of breaking the commandment again by making a fire. So those two right off the bat are are really bad. But the first thing that it says is they found him. So he's hiding. He has deliberately removed himself from the public square to work and collect sticks to build a fire. So it's not like this guy was like, oh shit, I didn't realize it was the Sabbath. No, no, he knew what he was doing. 
there are actually laws that are given to the Israelites that make room for accidentally sinning. If you sinned and you didn't realize you were sinning, there is a sacrificial process you can go through where you bring an animal and you can atone for your sin that you didn't realize you were doing. So it's not like this guy accidentally sinned. He accidentally was working on the Sabbath. He was hiding. He was deliberately hiding so he wouldn't get caught. Now, we still have to wrestle with the question, but why why did he need to get put to death? And not just put to death, but stoned to death. It's a pretty gruesome, painful death to have rocks thrown at you until, and not, you know, like big rocks, until you're dead. When he was off deliberately hiding to work, to start a fire. What, what, what is he going to do with the fire? Probably work. It is the blatant attitude that says, man, God has taken care of us, but I just don't give a damn. Look at all the good gifts. I am happy to receive the gifts. And in fact, he, I deserve all of these gifts, but I don't have to do what he says. I'll do what I want to do. Imagine living in a kingdom where you say to the king, give me all your blessings, but I'm not going to listen to a thing you say. I'm not going to obey any of your laws. In fact, I reject you as my king. I'll gladly accept the benefits of you providing and protecting, but I reject you as king. Bro, go back to Egypt. Go live with one of these other tribes in the area that reject God as king. You don't have to be here, but if you want to be a part of this nation, which operates as a theocracy where God is king and everything goes through God, if you want to be a part of this nation, I am gladly, I'm eager to bless you. I'm eager to take care of you. I I want to be generous with my goodness, but that means I'm king. And so for someone to say, I'm entitled to all the blessings of God as king, but I don't, I reject him as king. Um, Any ruler, that's not going to fly. At best, maybe you're exiled. But there's no way you're getting away with that. No way. You want me to be king. I'm king. You do what I say. And it's not arbitrary. God's not saying don't work and I'm otherwise I'm going to kill you just because he's he feels like that. No, he's actually trying to tell us something in this commandment. If you don't rest, you're going to die. And this is true even for our own rest. We'd have psychologists today tell us, if you don't take time to care for yourself, to rest, to break from the work, from the monotony, from the exhaustion, your body will simply give out. If you don't rest, you will die. And God is trying to create this rhythm for us to understand the best life-giving rest that we can have is to just be able to acknowledge and understand the value of the work he's been doing in our lives. 
you're trying to teach a, a, a very young child, you don't get dessert until you eat your vegetables. But the instant you give that kid a cookie before they have finished their vegetables, vegetables, they learn that I don't actually have to do what you say. I can get away with eating dessert first. And you let me do it. The difference here is not that the Israelites will get rotten teeth if they disobey God, but they are set aside to accomplish something incredible in the world, to pave the way for God's plan of salvation, to redeem the whole world. The promise to Abraham was that he's going to bless all of the nations through this people group. And learning and reinforcing an attitude that says, I don't I reject you as king defeats the purpose of what God is using this nation to accomplish which is immeasurably greater than they can even see or understand right now This is why we need the restoration work of Jesus because there's something innate inside of us that feels entitled Well, why isn't God blessing me and taking care of me? But I don't need to acknowledge him as king. There's this tension that grows in us. Some refer to it as original sin or our natural proclivity towards brokenness. And I don't know anyone that is free from this struggle to harmonize the freedom that got the generous goodness that God wants to give us and our willingness to submit to him. But this is why we need the work of Jesus on the cross who fills in that gap, who bridges that gap for us on our behalf to make us right with God, not because we can, but because he can. The blood of Christ that covers us, whether we've committed some heinous act Or we're just picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Take some time today and consider, just look for the ways that God has been generous with his goodness in your life. And maybe it might be hard because you feels like you've spent 400 years in slavery. But he wants to show you his goodness. He wants, he's inviting us to taste and see how good he is. And this is the Bible. Even in the middle of the messes that we read about, it invites us to taste and see that he is good. And I have been your host, The Dumb Christian. Love you guys. Next time. Another special shout out to Holly Habercorn. Guys, thank you so much for listening to Dumb Christian. I really appreciate it. I'm glad I could be with you today. Be sure to leave us a review, a like. Let us know what you liked, what you'd like to hear more of. Share this with your friends and your family. And let's go on this journey together. Catch you guys later. Love you.